Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I am Scott Challoner and you join us on another sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. A little later on in today's show we're going to be joined by former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman Lord Blunkett but first and foremost I'm delighted to have Kevin Clifford alongside me. Kevin is the Principal Veterinary Surgeon at Brompton and Veterinary Clinic in London. Kevin, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Well, thank you, Scott. Um, hello. Um, thanks for the invite. It's a real pleasure having you with us, Kevin. Um, the reason we're here, of course, is to establish your take on leadership first and foremost. But in light of the fact that today's generation of business leaders is probably going through, I think it's fair to say, one of the greatest challenges of our time, it would be remiss of me not to ask how you found it navigating the COVID-19 pandemic over the last few months? Well, uh, like many businesses, I I guess it has been quite difficult. Um, I mean, we were, I suppose, one of the lucky ones in that we needed to stay open. Um, So um, we're an essential business. We're normally a three-vet, four-nurse clinic in in Chelsea, but um, due to sort of staff shortages, people either shielding or having to go home, uh, we were actually down to one vet and um, two nurses, which which made it very difficult. But we were only dealing with emergency cases, so urgent cases, uh, pain, uh, you know, um, cases that really needed to be seen. Um, and it was it was hard actually. It was hard, but it was um, it, it was you know we we managed and gradually people started to come back and gradually we were able to open up a little bit. Um, but I think dealing with clients' expectations was quite difficult because we needed to manage what um, people thought needed to be seen. And then we were having to make judgments on what we were allowed to be seen because we had fairly strict guidelines um, from our uh, college as well as the government about what we could do and what we could not do. Um, for instance, there had been a lot of oxygen worries at the beginning, of, at the end of March, beginning of April, um, to do with the NHS. So we were under a very restricted um, set of guidelines with regards to surgery about what we could operate on and what we couldn't operate on. Um, but on a day-to-day basis, although most of our normal work is sort of preventative care, um, you know, we do see life and death stuff. So um, we had cases that needed to be seen and patients that needed us. And I guess we needed to be there, there for them um, as much as anything else. Mm. But uh, it was a very strange time when it was really bad. Um, but I think as it started to ease up and people got a little less frightened, it became a little easier. Um, and I, um, and I, I guess we just had to manage that process, as, I guess, as a whole country as well as just the clinic. And I suppose that a lot of people will be looking to their veterinary surgeons for advice at the moment, because for the benefit of those uh, tuning into this, we are recording on the uh, the 29th of July 2020, and news has emerged in recent days that a pet cat in um the south of England actually tested positive for the uh, the COVID-19 virus. Um, with regards to that, Kevin, um, it's not necessarily anything that people need to wholly worry about that, is it, despite the news? No, I think it's been apparent that uh, there has been human-to-animal transmission for some time, and um, but it's only in very, very minor cases, very, very few cases. And I, I think, in fact, that's highlighted one of the biggest problems that we've had is that although our work level was quite low back in March and April, 
we were dealing with a massive amount of phone inquiries. People were worried. People wanted to know what they could do, what whether we were open, whether what we could see, what we couldn't see, and you know what uh, the risks were as far as you get a story that came out, and then people would phone us and want to know. Uh, and that was, you know, our phones have been very, very difficult to manage. That's probably, in some ways, one of the the, the, the hardest aspects for us is that we literally return our phones on at 8.30 in the morning and uh, they ring constantly until we until we uh, go on through unanswered phone. It's been quite tricky, that. And can you see sort of a route forward now? Is it clear exactly what's expected of you in the future as lockdown restrictions continue to lift? Because there is inevitably going to be a long-term effect on your industry if you have to continue to operate under such strict procedures. Yeah, so we've, we've pretty much gone back to normal now within um, uh, social distancing guidelines. We're quite lucky uh, within the practice I have in Chelsea. So I have quite a large consulting room and I have actually have quite a large waiting room as well, um, which uh, uh, which we've sort of managed to make so we can have just one person in the waiting room, one person in the consulting room. So uh, a lot of businesses have not actually been able to actually have clients with their pets. Um, and that has been very difficult. So when we're dealing with, you know, a subject as, you know, we obviously we, we have to deal with, you know, the end of days and when you're actually you're dealing with the last few days or hours or, or minutes of a beloved pet and then you're trying to explain to the owner that they've got to be over there while you're over here is is, is really very difficult. Um, so I think um, the sort of social distancing side of it has, we've we've been a little bit lucky with because the amount of space we have, but it has been very, very stressful. Uh, both emotionally and uh, and practically, actually. I suppose that what the COVID-19 pandemic has certainly done is raised the importance of mental health and well-being and brought that back into the national discussion. And it's easy to instantly think of that in a business context as being about safeguarding your own and that of your staff. But in your case, it's also just as much about those that use your service, as you pointed out there, rightly so. Well, yes. I mean, we have, you know, we have clients and patients, and so we have responsibilities to both. Um, and it's um, it can be quite difficult to manage, and you have to guide people as best you can. But in fact, it's you know just talking about the problems with COVID. It's, it, it, you know the fact that it's been so problematic it has made it very very rewarding, certainly uh, mentally and, and psychologically, in that you're dealing with people who are incredibly grateful that they can you can help them. Um, and so we've been quite fortunate, I suppose, that we have been able to help people during um, with their pets when they've, you know, cut their foot or impaled themselves on railings and awful things that we've actually seen during this uh, um, COVID crisis. And actually, you know, you, you we have to just get on and, and manage it in the best possible and safest manner for everybody, but at the same time trying to alleviate pain and suffering and, and all the other things. Um, and I think certainly... It, in terms of mental health, it, it is it has been hard. It's been hard for for myself. It's been hard for staff, and it's been obviously hard for you know clients as well. But it, it, you you have to see the the, the 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 rays of sunshine within this, and people are you know very happy when you when you do help them. And there, um, you know, we've seen many 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 new puppies and kittens, and it, it is. You know, the whole clinic will just lift when a when a whole new bunch of puppies come in one morning, and we just see half a dozen puppies. It's very, very sweet, and it sort of makes mm. us realise what we're what why we're in the business we are in.
morale boosters are much needed whenever they do come along during a time like this. And thinking of some of those positive aspects that you sort of alluded to there during this period of time, is there anything that you could say that this sort of experience of crisis management, if you will, has taught you from a sort of business leadership perspective? Yeah, I mean, you've got to, I I, I mean, I think as a a leader, um, it's quite difficult. I, I, I feel that I do set the sort of I, I, I set, have to set the ethos and the tone of the clinic I think it I am directly responsible for pretty much everything that happens in the clinic um, so even though when it's not me doing things uh, the ultimate responsibility comes back to me I, I think I have a fairly soft touch <laughs> or leadership style but I do think I'm probably uh, I do listen to everything that's happening around me so I'm in one room listening to another room and I'll uh, you know I might have a quiet word after if I hear something that um, that I want to change. But um, I think my leadership style is fairly form- informal. But I think that you do realize that when the chips are down, you've got to step up. There's no point me not being around and expecting my, my staff to do stuff when I'm trying to have a, a long lunch or something like that. That's just not going to happen. You, you, you're basically, we're all in the, you know, we were all on the front line together. And, and in fact, you know, talking about silver linings is that I think that sort of team building that's actually happened from the adversity of COVID has been quite marked, actually. I think we're probably going to carry that forward, um, having, you know, gone through quite quite difficult times. But um, certainly, um, I think going forward towards the end of the year and next year, I, I suspect that the team will be better for it. And of course, they will naturally look to you for inspiration, guidance and reassurance as and when it's needed. But it can be a little bit. (laughs) But of course, it can be a little bit of a lonely place when you are the one having to provide all of that. And there isn't really anybody else for you to refer to when you need a little bit of inspiration for yourself. So when you do find yourself in a time like that, Kevin, where is it that you look to for that little bit of inspiration when you require it? Um, I mean, I probably my yeah probably within my family. I think I actually got quite a lot of support from my family during this time. As I said, we were quite understaffed, and my two daughters stepped up and came into the clinic and helped out full time for a while. Um, my wife has worked. Uh, my wife's a, 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 a hospital surgeon, and she has worked the entire time. So, you know, you know that there are other people pulling their weight as well and, and and doing their best and i i think i've just always tried to do my best i suppose and i think that's but if i i suppose the only person i really if you want that real answer is probably my father who was very calm very old-fashioned sort of gentleman uh, i kind of looked to him as what i would like to be in a, in a crisis and I think it just goes to show, doesn't it, that some of the most influential people out there can be those closest to us, especially in a time such as this. They can be friends, family, colleagues. It doesn't have to necessarily be somebody who puts themselves on a pedestal that's an inspirational leader as such. No, I think that's, I think that's very true. I think the trouble with pedestals, it's very easy to get knocked off them. I think you have to, you have to show responsibility. You have to tell your team where to go but ultimately you have to be leading your team you have to be taking your team with you there's no point if you're standing up there on your pedestal and just telling everybody else what to do i think it's quite important that you're down there at the bottom um showing everybody what to do and how to do it and doing it with them 
And thinking about sort of the next sort of 12 to 18 months, we know that we are going to have to adjust to a new way of working, a new way of living until we emerge from the COVID situation. But what is next for you and for the Brompton Veterinary Clinic, uh, do you think, Kevin? And what do you really hope to achieve business-wise during that time? Well, I think that is probably the most difficult question you've asked, actually. Um, I think that I I want to... what What worries me really would be would be becoming ill. And I think one has to make sure that we are as safe as possible. And I think it's very easy to see nothing changing massively until we have a vaccine for this. Um, and I think we will have to carry out the same sort of work procedures, the same social distancing, the same uh, limited number of clients within the building. Um, and it, that won't really change until we actually have a little bit more of, of virus security, I don't think. Um, and so certainly in my business, I'm going to have to just carry on doing what I'm doing at the moment. It's, it's, uh, I, I, I don't think that, um, uh, I don't think I see any other changes from where we are at the moment, certainly for the next, next 12 months, hopefully, um, we'll be able to keep going as we are for the next 12 months with none of us getting ill. Mm, we are quite a small so. group, so seven mm. of us, you see. So, uh, I think that would be the, the thing that would worry me is that, uh, you know, if one of us gets ill, we were all we w- would all get ill. Um, and in fact, right during the middle of COVID, one of my big worries that I would see a patient and say, "Look, I, we're hopefully we, we will be open tomorrow, um, but this is what I want you to do if we're not open tomorrow." Um, and, and sometimes you you know you were dealing with a case that you'd have to make a judgment: Well, am I going to see you tomorrow? Am I going to see you next week? But this is what you're going to do if I can't see you tomorrow. And I think that probably that uncertainty may come back if we get a second wave. Certainly going to be interesting to see how it pans out, because there are still a great many variables in this, of course. And considering just how informative it's been having you join us this afternoon to share your views, Kevin, and your experience, I think it would be wonderful to catch up in future and have you back on the programme in a few months' time, just to see hopefully where we're at at that point in time. I would like that. Yeah, that would be very interesting. Hopefully we're all Mm. happy, healthy and well then. Of course, the hope is that there will be some very positive news to share at that point in time, for sure. It has been a real, real pleasure for me inviting you onto the uh, the programme today. I really enjoyed um, having you with us, Kevin. And most importantly, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on in the meantime. Thank you very much. I would also reiterate that message to everybody tuning in and listening today. Do please continue to look after yourselves and others because it does make a tangible difference in saving lives. I was speaking today to Kevin Clifford, the Principal Veterinary Surgeon at Brompton Veterinary Clinic in London. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords and a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State, as well as the incumbent chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. During his political career, he became renowned as one of the most well-recognised politicians of his generation, holding various senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, all despite being blind from birth. He was, of course, elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015. I hope you all enjoy the interview just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett himself. And all of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. 
Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, 
that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere Uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, Those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of 
getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. 
Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, 
if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did 
from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition, 
more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, 
they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blanket. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.